Welcome back to Out the Gate, the podcast about sailing and adventure on and around San Francisco Bay. This week, I'm excited to have Jim Hancock on the show. He's the visionary behind the San Francisco Sailing Science Center. It's a hands-on, interactive learning center that'll be built on Treasure Island, which is becoming quite the sailing hub with the Treasure Island Sailing Center and now U.S. Sailing making it a base. Jim's not only a longtime Bay Area sailor and sailing instructor, but he holds a master's in naval architecture and marine engineering from MIT. So he's more than qualified to be the founder and president of the Sailing Science Center. So with that, I'll let Jim take it. Enjoy. First, thank you, Ben, for taking the time to do this podcast and interview. I appreciate it a lot. Equally, I've been excited about about having this interview. Uh, myself, I go usually by Jim, Jim Hancock, and I have a background academically in naval architecture and marine engineering. I studied studied that at MIT, got my master's degree, and went to work as a marine engineer for Exxon, where I was doing computational fluid dynamics. So there's a little bit of the science in sailing right there. Uh, the reason I went to MIT was because I had started sailing as a teenager, and I, I knew that that was what I wanted to do. I, you know, I wanted to work around the water and work on boats, and that was what I loved. So I think, you know, even right there, I'm looking at you know, something that I loved as a, a hobby or as a sports activity uh, at a young age really directed my career path. How did you get into sailing? When I was 14, my, my family were power boaters. We had a ski boat, and we needed to, needed to get some parts for the ski boat. We were up at Lake Tahoe. We went to the, the parts place, and while we were there, they had a video showing of these young ladies. They were wearing bikinis, and they were sailing a Hobie cat, and they were flying a hull, and it looked pretty fun. And my dad saw the video, and I probably saw the young ladies in bikinis and said, we need one of those. And we went home with a Hobie cat. Wow. <laughs> um, you know, which I think proves that uh, young women in bikinis can sell sailboats. Even to power boaters. <laughs> yeah, even to power boaters. Um, maybe that wasn't what appealed to him. But in any case, we went home with a Hobie cat. And uh, it was actually, it was a couple of years before... I really got into it when I was 16, had a driver's license, and my parents said, here's the keys, you know, take the boat. We launched it out of Redwood City. I, I got out on my own. I was able to get away from the, the parents, the family, uh, go with my high school friends. And mostly we were learning on our own by making a lot of mistakes. We, we made just about every mistake there was. And that's on the Hobie Cat as well. That was on the Hobie Cat. Uh, and then I had a friend who had a, a laser, and we would... We would car top his boat and trailer my family's boat. Both pretty wet boats for San Francisco Bay. It must have been a little chilly at times. We wore wetsuits. Mm -hmm. We always wore wetsuits when we were sailing, and we went in the water a lot. <laughs> we capsized them. You know, we righted them. Uh, we had dismastings. We had um, almost sinkings, uh, almost collisions, uh, got lost in the fog, got caught in the 
the tide. A lot of really great lessons that, you know, in a way I'd say, well, we're lucky to have made it this far. But the best way to learn. Yeah. And how then did that love of sailing translate to your profession? Well, at an even younger age, I knew that I loved engineering, and I particularly liked mechanical engineering. Mm. Um, I had gone through a phase where I loved cars. Even at age 12, I had in mind that I would be an engineer. So the sailing helped to redirect or guide that towards marine engineering and the, the naval architecture. I think it's fascinating that you've had this connection between science and sailing from a young age. And now you're turning that into the Sailing Science Center. Tell us about that. Well, after all that sailing and academic career, working as a marine engineer, um, I then went into software development, made, made enough money to buy a sailboat and sail into the sunset for a period of time, six years. What boat was that? It's a 39-foot um, double-ended cutter. It's called a Freya 39. Mm-hmm. Sure. And w after returning from that cruise, um, I've been away and out of the workforce for quite some time. So I like to describe it as my, um, my office skills were rusty from so much salt water. And so I came back from that and got my captain's license and started teaching sailing. That was, you know, the skill and the, the mindset that I had at that time. And I, I went to work for one of the biggest sailing schools in the Bay, Club Nautique, the largest, depending on what measure you use. And I always felt that there was an opportunity for a better classroom, hmm. that the, you know, we should have models and wind tunnels and, and wave tanks and things like that in our sailing classroom. When we got on the water, when we had students on the boat on the water, a lot of times they would be too preoccupied with other distractions around them, um, you know, which usually was another boat coming at you. And, that you know, you're talking about the airflow over the sails, and they're looking at, you know, what they think is going to be an imminent collision. So I thought we had an opportunity to, to do some really exciting stuff in the classroom. That idea continued to a point where when I left working at Club Nautique um, in 2013, I actually wrote up a business plan for a sailing school in which there would be this outsized emphasis on the classroom. It was going to be called Fast Angles Sailing School. It was going to be a small competitive um, racing school, so a, a two-boat racing program, and we would have these great classroom aids that would, you know, teach the physics and engineering of sailing. So for, you know, real high-end customers. It didn't pencil out, mm. you know. It just didn't pencil out because it, you would have to have two very high-level instructors working 52 weeks a year every day. I didn't see how it would, would really be viable. The problem with it was lack of scale. So when... In 2015, I started working with the Treasure Island Sailing Center and Travis Lund, who he and I had been good friends then for almost 10 years. He was the, at that time, the waterfront director there. They already had the sailing school. They already had the scale. They already had 
over a hundred boats. So I, I started the conversation with Travis. Hey, you've got the sailing school, you've got the boats. What if we do this really cool stuff in the classroom? So that evolved from there because I had also been looking for where is the right venue for this. It had to be, and I knew, knew from my days working at Club Nautique, that one of the keys to success was, just like in real estate, it's location, location, location. If we didn't put it in the right place, it wasn't going to work. Treasure Island happens to be the ideal place for this, and maybe in a little bit we can go into why that is. Explain a little bit more your vision for the center. You're now expanding beyond just a classroom in a sailing school, but actually having galleries and seven different galleries to teach the connection between science and sailing. So I like to think of it, it's like the seven C's, right? We have the seven galleries. This is a, it comes from a lot of brainstorming, and this goes back to about 2017 when I had sort of my second collaborator on the project. The first collaborator was Martha Blanchfield, um, and we, you know, we talked about doing some things, but never, that, that was w- with the, uh, the fast angle school where we, you know, said, okay, it didn't, didn't pencil out. Second collaborator was a little bit different. By this time, I had talked to Travis, and Travis had said, hey, you know, there's this unused airplane hangar next to the Treasure Island Sailing Center. Maybe you could put, put these exhibits in there. The old Pan Am Clipper building? It's, it's, yeah, it's one of the airplane hangars that was used by, by Pan Am back in the 19, late 1930s, 1940s, early 1940s. The vision changed then to being one where, hey, we're going to do a museum for the public. Why restrict this just to sailing students, that anybody from the public can come to this, and they can go through the museum, and when they leave the museum, they have an opportunity through the Treasure Island Sailing Center of actually getting on a boat and having an on-the-water experience immediately if they want to. And then vice versa, all of the underserved kids that are going to the Treasure Island Sailing Center, we call it TISC, all of those kids will get a free pass to the museum, and they have the ultimate classroom, the ultimate STEM education that they can connect directly with the experiences that they're having on the water. So we really tie everything up neatly with a bow. That collaboration sounds ideal. I I had a great conversation with Travis uh, about the Treasure Island Sailing Center, and he was talking with excitement both about the Sailing Science Center and the fact that U.S. Sailing has made Treasure Island a base. Is that a partner you're looking to work with? It is, absolutely. Even within the sailing community, not everybody's aware of this, but a year ago, year and a half now, U.S. Sailing moved their Olympic Training Center from Florida to San Francisco to Treasure Island. And so we have Olympic hopefuls who are out practicing in Clipper Cove. So in the the vision going forward five years from now, what, what we see is that tourists will be able to Tourists and others will be able to come from the Embarcadero, quite close to where we are right now, take a ferry to Treasure Island, walk along the Esplanade along uh, the north shore of Clipper Cove, looking at Olympic hopefuls practicing, which is pretty exciting just in itself. They can go through a museum, 
learn all about sailing, the science and the technology at the, you know, the upper levels and even what the science and technology of sailing was thousands of years ago, which has changed a lot. And then if they want, they have a chance to get on the water. So it, the whole thing is really, yeah, it, it, it all fits together. And what I describe is it's, a, it's the puzzle piece that fits perfectly into that location on Treasure Island. You mentioned that Treasure Island is, is a perfect place. And, and uh, one of the things that Travis and I talked about was how wonderful Clipper Cove is because you have the, the wind coming over, but none of, none of the seas uh, on the west side between Yerba Buena and Treasure Island there. But there's question as to what Clipper Cove is going to be with a new marina and all of Treasure Island is changing. What, what do you see happening there in the future as you look forward? Ten years from now, Treasure Island will be unrecognizable, is what I see. Uh, they're, you know, the developers have plans for high rises. They're already, I think, into their second billion or more dollars of spending on transportation infrastructure. Uh, they're working on water, sewage, electrical. All of that in- infrastructure is going in for a tenfold population increase on the island in the next 10 years. So that's a pretty big pretty big growth plan. Most of the structures that are on the island today will be gone, where it's sort of... Not the one where the sailing science center is. No, no. <laughs> um, yeah, so I'm glad you, you mentioned that. There's four, there are four historic buildings on the island, okay. three of which are related to the old Pan Am Clippers, the administration building, which is a beautiful curved Art Deco building. That's where... The Sailing Science Center has its offices now, office, singular. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> but we have, a, we have a really great office uh, in, the, in the basement of that building. But it's, it's nice, it's warm, it's cozy. I need to stop you because you were telling me earlier about – it's a great building for anybody who hasn't seen it. Like you said, Art Deco is just gorgeous when you drive onto the island. But you were saying there was this kind of strange, mysterious room in this building oh. that you had no idea – the door was always locked and bolted. So immediately across the hall from the entrance to the SSC office is this door that says U.S. Navy, I forget, no entrance, something like that. And it looks like the door to a, a vault or a safe. It's a, it's a big metal door. And it was always closed when I went down there. And one day when I came down to the office, the door was open. And, you know, of course, being curious that I am, I, I wandered in, and there was a slightly older woman in there with her cat. <laughs> and I, well, this is cool. I says, who are you? <laughs> and she says, well, I'm, I'm the curator for all of the, the blueprints for the, the buildings in San Francisco, and this is where we keep them. The room is filled with drawer after drawer of these blueprints, and I thought, well, that's really cool. Who knew? I mean, this is because this is, you know, we still have a lot of, a lot of this engineering still recorded on paper. Yeah. But I said, so what's the story about this, this room, this door? And she goes, well, it's a radio-isolated room. It was, it was a war room. It was where the higher-ups in the Navy would meet to discuss things, and they didn't want any, uh, you know, they didn't want to be bugged. And that was, that was what it was for. And if, if anybody um, listening uh, remembers seeing the television program, um, Get Smart, I, I thought, oh, this is like the cone of silence and Get Smart. You know, this is where, 
if you're going to have a really secret conversation, this is where you went was in this room. And I thought, well, that's cool. So that's the, that's the real deal there. That's very cool. That's a bit of a side note, but uh, I thought a good story. So we're sitting not far, actually, right now, uh, as you mentioned, on the Embarcadero uh, from the Exploratorium. With that in mind, what kind of – let's talk about the exhibits a little bit. What do you have in mind for how uh, the public is going to learn about sailing? Is it going to be hands-on like the Exploratorium? What? Give us a picture. Our ideal is that everything is hands-on and interactive, so it's very – it's very visual, very auditory, very tactile that we reach all of the different centers of learning as, as appropriate to, you know, to the different exhibits. The Exploratorium is, to a large degree, the model for that as being you know, one of the leaders, maybe the leader in interactive museums. We're working actually on an exhibit right now. We call it a model land yacht experiment table. So what this is, is it's sailboats with wheels that sail on a, a, a table with a fan. What we're demonstrating with this is that these little cars can make progress upwind. They can sail toward the fan, even though the wind is blowing them away. They'll move toward the fan, which is what sailboats do. And it's one of the remarkable things about sailing that I think a lot of us find this is like magic, right? How is it possible that you can go toward the wind? It's something that you can play with. You can experiment with the adjusting the angles on the sails. And, and you can have races with these things, too. I think one of the really fun examples, too, and we've done a prototype of this just with a lazy Susan on a, on a table, is something called the, um, the Coriolis carousel. And it demonstrates a principle called the Coriolis effect. Maybe some of the listeners have heard of this. It's why the ocean currents in the northern hemisphere circulate clockwise and counterclockwise in the, the southern hemisphere, similarly for pressure systems in the atmosphere. And we can demonstrate this, you know, just on a, a lazy Susan by rolling a ball across it and see how the trajectory of the ball takes a curved path. Mm. But whether it's curved or not depends on on the reference frame from which you view it. So if you're on the if you're on the lazy susan or the turntable, it looks like it's curving, but if you're looking at it from overhead, it still looks like it's going in a straight line. And this is a it's a really cool principle. Everybody had, you know, I'd been told about the Coriolis effect from the time I was in high school. And honestly I didn't understand it until I was a junior in college. Um, and I think, so we can create that kind of understanding, that aha moment in, in a matter of seconds with something like this. These are just be, a, you know, a couple examples of the now more than 200 exhibits that we have in mind for the museum. That's really exciting. So you're talking about these exhibits that you're actually in the process of conceiving and creating, which brings me to my question of where are you in the process of creating the museum itself? So we are a growing nonprofit. We are a you know, 501c3, means we're tax exempt. We have just begun our fundraising process, so we're a very nascent organization. Uh, we are building our first exhibit right now. Our, our plan is, and, and by the way, we're actually right on track with that. So 
our, our plan is to develop our exhibits over the next five to six years. And we want, we want to, at the end of that time, have roughly 200 exhibits. Wow. So, so we're talking about, you know, that's an average of like one a week, which is pretty, we're going to be an exhibit building machine. Um, we don't expect to open a permanent uh, museum until approximately that time, until approximately 2025. Um, the question is, what are we doing in the meantime, mm-hmm. right? What are we doing with all these exhibits? Because we want to forward our mission, which is to, you know, inspire this passion, both about sailing and science, um, and especially in, in young people. And so the, the plan for that is that we, we have a number of venues where we can show our exhibits other than at this airplane hangar. So the Bay Model has invited us to show exhibits there. Um, Call of the Sea has invited us to put exhibits on, on the Matthew Turner, which is the, the boat they have. The tall ship they have. The tall yeah. ship, yeah. And there are other places. We think UC Berkeley and College of Alameda were going to involve students at those schools in the, in the construction of the exhibits. In fact, our first exhibit is being built at the College of Alameda. We want to partner really closely with these organizations. So, the, so what's going to happen is we're going to have our exhibits being displayed at various venues around and probably be rotating them. It would give us a chance to test them, to iterate on them, find out what breaks, find out where the weak points are before we ever open a you know, permanent museum. If people want to get involved and help out, how do they go about doing that at this stage? Well, the best way is to go to our website, which is sailingscience.org. You know, we've got at least three different places where you can click on something either to get a newsletter, to uh, get information, or to uh, volunteer. And we have a volunteer page where we have posted volunteering needs. It's been astonishing to me, actually. Ben, I mean, I can't even tell you how just through that outreach, through that, that volunteer page, we have found quality people to help in really all of the areas that we've needed and in some miraculous way, always just when we needed it. Yeah, there's a large community of sailors here in San Francisco who want to be involved in the community and want to be involved in these kinds of projects. It sounds like an, a, an exciting one. When you look out beyond 2025 with a fully functioning sailing science center, tell me the complete vision, what success looks like. Okay. Well, there's one other component that goes into how do we get from here to 2025, and that's mobile outreach not through your mobile phone, but through a truck or a bus that's been converted to be a mobile museum. And in this way, we can take our material, our content, really anywhere we want. Um, We can take it into, you know, directly to school kids in San Francisco, the East Bay, the South Bay, L.A., Florida, wherever we want to drive this thing, right? So that acts um, partly for, you know, generating awareness about what we're doing but also gives us, you know, much greater geographic reach. In the ideal success vision that you're talking about, the doors to the permanent museum open sometime in 2025. And what I see is that even now, 
I'm looking at who is my successor. And I am identifying candidates for that. You know, I think this is a, a great time to, to say this. In the 1950s, when Edmund Hillary and Tenzing Norgay summited Mount Everest for the first time, they were only on the peak of Mount Everest for a very short time. I think it was 10 or 15 minutes. They took their pictures, you know, they planted their flag, and they started, started back down. So I'm sure that that 10 or 15 minutes was very sweet, but that was not what the victory was about. The victory was about everything that it took to get there. It took the, the planning and the fundraising and the organizing of the party, the provisioning, the risks that they took, physical and financial. So it really is a case of it's, it's about the journey, not the destination. And very much, this is about the journey, not the destination. And for me, the journey is both learning about leadership myself and then creating new leaders through that. And so I'm being very intentional in the way that I'm doing this. And we have, we have volunteers who I'm onboarding. They're young adults, typically late 20s, early 30s. And, you know, giving them as much opportunity to really get involved in this and, and take ownership on it, and then mentoring them so that they can be the leaders of the future. I'm not going to be around that much longer. You know, I'm good case, maybe I got 40 years in me. But, <laughs> um, and I, you know, I don't expect to stop working and, you know, until I can't. But there will be another challenge. And I think that this is the idea here is that we have a great leadership project that results in what I think of as a gift to the community of the San Francisco Bay Area, one that has just tremendous value and legs going forward. You talked about why you think Treasure Island is the right place for this. Uh, why is San Francisco the right place to build a sailing science center? Yeah, that's, that's a really good question. Um, there aren't too many places that would match it. Um, there is something similar in Lorient, France. Um, it's the, called the Taberly Museum, or the Cité de la Voile, which is the, the city of sales. Um, it's much smaller scale than what we've done, but to a degree it's a proof of concept. What's perfect about San Francisco is that we have a sailing history, we have a sailing culture right now. We have a very high-tech culture and industry in the Bay Area. And so you've got the merging of technology, science, and sailing in this one location. Treasure Island, because of Clipper Cove, the Treasure Island Sailing Center, the U.S. Olympic team, and its close proximity to the ferry building and the Embarcadero where there's a very high concentration of tourists, you know, for whom we can, we can deliver this to. It really checks all the boxes on the location. So that's the, why Treasure Island? Why is this just the right spot? Do you still have your Freya 39? I do. And do you sail it on the, on the bay or is most of your you time know, spent on the museum? So, so I live on my boat. And I, I sail regularly, but I sail on other people's boats now. 
And so I put my boat to a different use. Talk about the challenge a little bit of living on your boat and then trying to take it out for a sail. <laughs> um, it takes a lot of time. It's amazing how quickly one can spread out, um, you know, and get your, your personal things all over a boat, which is really unsuitable when you're sailing on a, on a sailboat, which tips or heels. Um, you know, where everything would be rolling around and, and falling on the floor. So it, it can take several hours just to get that, you know, put away and, and ready to go. Where did you go when you headed out from here? My wife and I left in 1999, and we we went out the gate. It was almost exactly 20 years ago. It was October of 99. Uh, and we turned left. We went down to Mexico. We were in Mexico for almost two years, um, I guess a year and a half. And then uh, May 1st of 2002, I guess that's over two years, isn't it? Uh, May 1st of 2002, we left from Cabo San Lucas, headed across the Pacific. So we, we went through French Polynesia, Cook Islands, Tonga, Fiji, New Zealand, Australia. You know, we were in New Zealand for a year and a half, did a bunch of work there on the boat, and then a year in Australia, which was really a high note on which to finish. We did a total of about 17,000 sea miles wow. on that cruise. What were some of the, the highlights or lowlights that stick in your mind? Boy, a, a few things come up really quickly. Highlights. Um, highlights were everything from seeing unbelievably clear skies and the stars away from light pollution um, to seeing, you know, just really unusual weather phenomena, seeing the green flash, seeing things in the ocean like at night, big flashes of light in the ocean that are, you know, very mysterious. These have been reported and are not well understood. Um, Sounds like an investigation for the Sailing Science Center. Yeah, it could be. You know, sea life, dolphins, whales, um, you know, a very close encounter with, with a group of, they were called false killer whales, that uh, they were within touching distance of, a whole pod of them within touching distance of me. Mm. Um, I was in a dinghy in Australia. You know, that's got to be a highlight, right? And, wow. you know, sort of the lowlights, but the, some of the most valuable experiences, we, we got caught in some weather a couple of times, uh, one time very notably, and that was a you know, truly a growth experience. Where? Uh, we were going north from New Zealand to Tonga, and it was uh, roughly a 1,000-mile a passage. And we left in the middle of the southern winter. Um, it, was, uh, it was August, so which would be our summer, but it was their winter. And left on a very dodgy forecast because... We were, at that time, uh, customs overstayers. Mm -hmm. So we had a, a temporary import permit, and the government in Auckland was saying, you know, um, you're going to have to pay some duty on this boat. And it was like, you know, 30 to 50% of the value of the boat. And I said, we're not paying the duty. <laughs> Let's get out of here. <laughs> you know? It's interesting you bring that up. I was just listening to somebody else, another sailor, tell a story about having to leave, uh, I believe it was Iceland and getting bad weather because of the same reason. He was saying, you know, this is a problem Joshua Slocum didn't face when, <laughs> when he circumnavigated all these rules. But whenever you have to be somewhere or out of somewhere, can 
put you in danger. Yeah, and, and you know, hindsight, uh, e- even as experienced as we were at that time, hindsight was a bad decision. It was, you know, taking a fairly optimistic reading of the, of the forecast, you know, the, which the forecast said that there was this depression that it was supposed to move to the southeast and diminish, and instead it moved to the northwest and intensified, and, and we really got spanked pretty bad. And there was, you know, a, a point in the middle of the ocean where Eleanor was saying to me, I don't want to die out here. And, you know, I knew my role was to reassure and um, to, you know, give her confidence. And I said, you know, we just, we, it's just going to be uncomfortable for a period of time. The boat's, boat's going to take care of us and um, we're going to be okay. But in my heart, I'm going, I, I don't want to die out here either. <laughs> You know, and it was, it was, we were thinking like that, you know, might not get out of here. And um, so it was, that was a, that was a, one of my very most valuable and and important experiences, actually. And the boat was able to handle the weather. It it was, but things were starting to go bad. You know, we had lost our GPS. We lost our computer. A wave boarded the boat and drenched the computer. Um, we lost uh, some of our rigging and one of our sails, so we have a, a small storm sail called a staysail. And in the middle of the night, uh, long story short, it broke loose and shredded, mm. and I had to collect it off the, the front of the boat, tethered in and literally crawling on the deck in a foot of green water washing over the, the, the deck while Eleanor hand-steered, you know, kind of white-knuckled. And so we, I think we were very close to, you know, kind of getting into the cascade of failures, right? It's, right. Not, it's, not, it's not just one thing that gets you. It's a series of things that cascade. I, when we got, got to our destination, we got to Tonga. And then before we, we left Tonga, I, I went up the rig and saw that we, we had um, had this shackle pin that came... 90% unscrewed at the the head of our jib and almost let loose and I thought oh my on goodness on one of your stays no on on the sail but it would have prevented us from being able to roll up the sail or anything like that and I thought if that had happened while we were out there I simply don't know what I would have done yeah right it would have it it would have been really a big problem for us and we were very lucky because it was a, there were just a, a couple of threads left in this screw you know, holding this thing together. And the lessons learned from that, when when you got into Tonga and were able to reflect on it, what were your thoughts? It was one of the more trying ordeals I've experienced. Um, The only other things that I've experienced that come close have been um, from illness, you know, from being really sick. You know, when I reflect on it, I think that it was nothing compared to what, you know, some people go through during war. I think about the soldiers that were in the trenches in World War One for months, right? And we were out there for like four days, right? We had four days of, of miserable, you know, or somebody who has cancer. And, I, and it gave me more appreciation for people in those situations that, hey, I got out of it in four days. I thought, 
this this gives me a whole new level of respect and it's where you find you know where is your where is your strength where is your ability to do things when you're completely spent you're cold you can't we can't cook a meal we lost a lot of weight there was one point where we were we we did a maneuver it's called heaving two where you basically stop the boat but but the boat doesn't completely stop it drifts and that was to get some rest but there's a a reef um, downwind of us and so I needed to make sure we didn't drift too close to this reef or shoal it's called the Star of Bengal Shoal and you can find it on a, a chart we were about 50 miles away from it which sounds like a long way but if you're drifting and this is a would be a normal sailing speed in some conditions, but we're drifting at like three or four knots. You know, you can't go to sleep for, for eight hours. You know, you're going to use up most of that serum. And so I needed to get up and just plot our position on the chart to make sure that we had serum. And when I, and it was hard. I mean, it, that sounds so easy, but it was, I remember it being one of the most physically difficult things I've ever done uh, be, because of the exhaustion mm. and the motion of the boat when I, you know, I just needed rest. And it's like, no, this is, this is actually a life or death matter. You know, the conclusion after that was, no, we can't, we can't spend the night here, right? We, get, we need to get going again. You know, which is another, was another hard decision when we were both really, really needed rest. Wow. Going back to science and sailing, in the end, it's a very tangible use of science. It's science in the real world. I mean, you're talking about a life or death situation in which you had to make these calculations. You had to think about how the boat was going to perform. Really, it's a lot of the things that you're talking about teaching people about. It is, actually. And you're touching on one of the things that I think is why do we need a sailing science center? Why, why aren't the other three major science museums we have in the Bay Area, you know, the Lawrence Hall of Science, the Exploratorium, the Academy of Scientists, why aren't those enough? What do we bring that's, that's you know, unique? And what you said is, you know, about the tangibility of it, I, I think that what we're bringing is applied science. That's what's different, is everything that we're doing is coherent and cohesive because it's applied to a single discipline. Um, and I think that that's going to give it more value that, you know, we've all been in classes in school where we were being taught material that we didn't see what the use of this was. Why would I need to know this? Why would I need to know... Um, well, I mean, for me, I thought trigonometry was cool, but there, I'm sure, you know, students say, why would I need to know trigonometry? What do I need to know this for? Why do I need to read Shakespeare, you know? What do I need this for? And I think that's, that's where we, we can provide value because we tie it all to something real. And what you said earlier about being able to go to the museum and then go to the Treasure Island Sailing Center and go from seeing in an exhibit to actually being in a boat on the water. That's, that's really cool to have that right ability. Yeah. And I think that's, that's it. It's like, okay, 
we can we can get somebody in the museum and they can see this is how a sailboat goes upwind. And I'm going to guess that there's a percentage of people who, after they see that and play with the, you know, the little rolling sailboat, are going to say, wow, this is cool. I want to see how this works on the water, right? And that's, that's what we're hoping. And, you know, part of why we're hoping that, and I, this has been a sort of a subtext of the conversation, but there's a, you know, strong feeling among the, the volunteers on the, the, in the organization that sailing is a, an inherently valuable activity, that it teaches us a lot. It teaches us a lot about confidence and teamwork and leadership and skills that are valuable to us in our daily lives. You know, much as, you know, the experience during the, the rough weather taught me a lot and, and helped me to grow personally um, or being in situations where I had to solve problems and there wasn't anybody else there to help me. It's, it's actually important to be, for us to be in those kinds of situations. So if we, take, if we take a little kid, let's say we take a seven-year-old and put them on a eight-foot optimist dinghy and, you know, shove them off the dock. They're now on their own, and they've got to figure out how to get that boat where they're going, get it around the buoy, and, and come back. And there's nobody there to help them, right? Maybe you might have a coach boat with somebody yelling at them with a megaphone, but there's going to be a point where they say, hey, I did that. I did that by myself, you know? And they know it because there's nobody else there, and that's, that's a really, really important lesson. Is there anything that we haven't touched on that you'd like to talk about? Well, we really hit the high points, Ben. The, the key points really being that we think that... Let me see if I can put it this way um, as sort of a wrap-up. That humanity, and this is, this is getting a little grandiose, but I think it's okay. Humanity faces some real challenges going forward. I think that if we're realistic about it, we have to say we've got some major challenges that we that we face. And with with our existence and our planet. And I would say that as a sailor, one of the things you see, a sailor who's crossed some oceans, is that you really understand that we're on a water planet. And the oceans right now are, are in peril. That um, our reefs and our fish populations are, are dying. And if they go, we go. So we have Elon Musk who wants to go to Mars as a backup plan. There's a maxim that sailors use, which is that you should always step up into your life raft. What, what that means is you never get off your boat until it sinks out from under you because your boat has all of your food, your water, your clothing, your communications equipment. Everything that you need for survival is on your boat, and almost nothing of that is in your life raft. I think 
using Mars as a life raft. It's not a bad idea to have a life raft. But you want to put most of your energy into keeping your boat afloat. And so most of our energy needs to go into saving, saving our planet. And so from there, I think that there are, for me, two central issues. In, in the issue of the environment, and this is very broad, but in the issue of the environment, it's the oceans. And the oceans, you know, are affected by a lot of things, from global warming to, you know, runoff to um, pollution and all of these things. It's all connected, so I don't want to say that we should be focusing on the, the oceans and not the rainforests. I think getting people interested in science, and especially marine sciences, is one way that we can direct attention in that direction. In the area of human endeavors, I think the central issue is leadership and having great leadership, having leaders who have a clear vision of reality and who have the strength to stand up to a lot of criticism. And so when, you know, when I look at what we're doing at the Sailing Science Center and what sailing does in terms of developing personal character and leadership and what we can do in terms of developing those things actually in the sailing science program, I say we're hitting, to me, what are the two central issues that we need to be addressing. And so that's, that's what I would say in summation of what we're doing and the motivation for, for why we're doing it. Well, Jim, thank you so much for sharing these ideas, some of your personal stories around your cruising, and, of course, the excitement around the Sailing Science Center. Yeah, well, thank you, Ben. This is a, a new experience for me. I've never been in a sound room or studio before, so this is kind of cool. And I just, you know, I'm pretty excited about it. So, and awesome. it's, you're a great interviewer. <laughs> well, hopefully, we'll have you back once the, the museum's open and up and running, and uh, we can talk about more of the exhibits. I would love that opportunity, and I look forward to it. Great. Thanks. If you want to find out more about the Sailing Science Center, sign up to volunteer or receive their newsletter, you can visit sailingscience.org. It's one word, sailingscience.org. That's it for this week's show. Thanks for listening. I'm Ben Shaw, host and producer. If you're enjoying the podcast, do drop me a note on Instagram at OutTheGateSailing. If you're really enjoying the show, write a review in Apple Podcasts. It only takes a second and it helps the podcast show up in searches for others to enjoy. Until next time, smooth sailing.